I'm Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and you're listening to the sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church, a caring community connected through God, loving and serving all along life's journey. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10:15 a.m. in our sanctuary at 55 Rhodes Avenue, next to Bird Park in East Walpole, Massachusetts. You can also join us from anywhere online via our live stream by visiting facebook.com slash churchbythepark. For more information about our church and its ministries, visit churchbythepark.org. Now here's this week's message. So the first scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. May God add a blessing to the hearing of this word. Our second reading today comes from the Acts of the Apostles in the second chapter, the first uh, 11 verses. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound Like the rush of a violent wind, it filled the entire house where they were. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard from them speaking in the native language of East. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in all our languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. This is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. Well, a couple months ago on a windy April day, a crew from the Santa Fe Forest Service went out to an area called Las Dispensas near a mountain called Hermit's Peak in northern New Mexico. They were there that day to do a controlled burn of some of the brush there. They would burn the underbrush in this 1,200-acre space preemptively with acetylene torches. They would start these little fires in a circle. It would burn all the underbrush, and then if a wildfire came, it would not be able to spread through that area because it was already burned. Now, the weather forecast, according to the Forest Service, had said these were fine conditions to do this kind of controlled burn in. But then the weather changed, and a violent wind picked up, and the flames divided, and suddenly that controlled burn became an uncontrolled burn. And then two weeks later, about 20 miles to the south at a place called Calf's Canyon, again, another controlled burn got out of control. And that fire and the Hermit's Peak fire merged together to create the earliest, this was April, mind you, the earliest and largest fire in New Mexico's recorded history. And as of Wednesday, it was still burning. It's still burning today, I'm pretty sure. It has consumed more than 360,000 acres of land including a number of small towns and villages. It's covered approximately 494 square miles. Just for context, Boston and its surrounding area is about 48 square miles. So this is 10 times that size. And it is still only 50% contained. It will keep burning for some time. And perhaps your first thought is, well, it's New Mexico. This is the desert. What did they expect was going to happen when they lit fires there? But it's important to remember that that this area is not just a desert wasteland. People have lived there for thousands of years. In this particular area, there is a, a wonderful mixed culture that has been present there since the 16th century, a combination of Uh, descendants of the Hispanic and Spanish conquistadors, as well as the indigenous peoples there, Native Americans. Most of the people there speak two or three languages, Spanish, English, some combination of both. And they all stay there. They live and stay there, working in this rural place, this desert, because of what they call a querencia, a pull or a longing that binds them to the land. It's part of who they are. And it is, of course, a tragic, tragic irony that the efforts to prevent wildfires, to protect this beautiful culture and these people, that that has then led to this destruction of over 170 homes and numberless livestock. But thankfully, no human death toll at this point. But of course, this is not the first time that human beings have been burned by their overconfidence in their own skill and technical know-how. 
That is, of course, what the story of the tower built on the plain of Shinar is all about. It's about people trusting in their own innovativeness to build something for themselves. It was an example, an early example, of of the greatness of humans' ability to design things with purpose and intention. But the scripture is is vague about that purpose. It gives us some sense. It says that they that they were afraid of being scattered, and that was part of the reason they built the tower. It also says that they wanted to make a name for themselves. The Talmud, which is a collection of commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures, um, has lots of different interpretations of this fear and pride that the people felt. Uh, Rabbi Sheila, for instance, believed that the tower was, was built out of fear of another flood. These folks were only a generation away from Noah and the flood. They were the descendants of Ham uh, and Shem and and Noah's sons who were all gathered there on the plain. And so out of fear of a flood, they built a tower. One rabbi says it was so that they could escape the waters if they ever came up again. They could climb high in the tower and be safe. Another rabbi said it was so that they could climb the tower And once they got to the heavens, they could take axes and cut a hole in the dome of the sky. And if they cut a hole in the firmament, then the waters above would all drain out. And then God would never be able to use them again to destroy the people. The best defense, a good offense in that case. Rabbi Natan, on the other hand, said this this tower was simply an example of prideful idolatry a monument to the almighty self, in the words of one of the professors at the Jewish Theological Seminary. My favorite interpretation comes from Rabbi Yermiah bar Alazar, who said it was both fear and pride. He said there were actually three groups who were all working together on the tower. One group that wanted to use it in case of flood to escape. Another group that wanted to climb Uh, that wanted to envision this place as a shrine to their own greatness. So so those two groups, the first out of fear, the second out of pride, and then, of course, the last group wanted to use it as a platform to do battle with God, a combination of fearful pride, both the terror that God may destroy them again, but also the hubris to believe that they could defeat God if only they could get up there to God. Rabbi Menachem Posner, who surveyed this whole Talmudic tradition, comes down in the end and says that that the combination of fear and pride evident in these people shows that they were motivated by what he calls an ethic of survival. They saw survival as an end in itself. Let us make a name for ourselves, they said. Let us ensure that there will be future generations who will read about us and the great things we have done in their history books. To them, life in that sense of of biological endurance and the fame and glory of history, life was the ideal and survival was the virtue that they sought. But when self-preservation, survival, becomes your highest ideal, this story shows that disaster ensues. This past week, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and maybe like some of you, uh, we were reflecting on uh, the recent spate of mass shootings in this country. Of course, last week, there 
was the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. This week, a shooting at a hospital in Tulsa. In between those two that caught headlines, there were 17 other mass shootings around this country. And then I open up the Boston Globe this morning, and there were two more mass casualties just yesterday. One in Philadelphia, one in Phoenix. And, and I was talking to my friend about this, and, and he said to me, you know, I just can't imagine. What would possess someone? What would like, put the idea in their mind to go to an elementary school and shoot the place up? Or go to a hospital, a place of healing, and kill people there? I, I, can't, I can't imagine it. But I was thinking about this text, and I said, I can imagine it. I, can, I think I can understand it. Because you see, when people are hurt or afraid, when they feel like they have a wounded pride and, and that their life is, is not worth living unless they make a name for themselves, then they'll do something to restore that. Mass shooters, these young men, for the most part, build up a tower around themselves to protect themselves from the fear or the resentment that they have towards the world around them. They seek out places where they can find affirmation and acceptance for their sense of loneliness, but also for their resentments toward the wider world. And then they enter these towering echo chambers, typically on the internet, and in those places, in those towers, in their darker corners, killing people en masse is seen as something worthwhile and glorious to do. It's not good in the moral sense, but good doesn't really matter in this case. When your ethic is about survival, about preserving yourself alone above all others, then what's good doesn't matter. It's only about what will get you attention. One of the other things I read in the Globe this week was, was yet another article about the link between mental illness and these mass shootings. And it, it, is, it has been clear for a long time, but needs repeating, that it is not the mentally ill who do these things. It is not because of some diagnosed psychosis or sickness that people go and commit mass shootings. In fact, uh, Jonathan Metzl, who's the director of the Department of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University, he says that a mental illness diagnosis is much more predictive of being a victim of violence than it is of actually perpetrating violence. Mental health is not a good predictor, but age, social network, the access to firearms, a history of violence and substance use, all of these are far more predictive of when someone will be a mass shooter. Most mass shooters believe that what they are doing is a reasoned and calculated choice based on the real or perceived injustices they have experienced in their lives. Within those towers, within those echo chambers, this is what is reasonable. To make a name for yourself even if it comes to the expense of 19 little children and two teachers. The journalist Chris Hayes wrote an essay about a year ago in which he said that we live in an era of mass fame. 
By and large, thanks to the internet and social media, anyone and everyone now can become famous, from little babies who do silly things to cantankerous old grandmas who do silly things on the internet. Everyone can be famous. All these ordinary people can become global sensations. And that this is to be uh, lauded and praised, this, this culture of celebrity. And, and whether you're familiar with this phenomenon or not in your own personal life, what Hayes says is it's not just people who are seeking that fame who are affected by this. It is all of us because the possibility that we may be made famous or infamous on the internet hangs over all of us all the time. Say the wrong thing. Someone's going to get it on camera, and it's going to fly around the internet forever. You can't unring that bell. And again, that may be foreign to you, but the 21-year-old who shot up the grocery store in Buffalo, he came of age in that culture. And the 18-year-old in Uvalde and the 18-year-old in Tulsa, these young men come up in a world where they expect to be seen. And when they don't feel seen, well, they have to make a name for themselves somehow. Even when they die, even when their bodies are destroyed in a hail of police gunfire, at least they will be survived by their horrific actions. And that is, is born out of that fear and anxiety about being overlooked, for sure. But it's also the hubris, the hubris to believe that their life is worth being made famous, that they have the audacity to do something that awful. The old saying goes that pride cometh before the fall, but pride is the fall in this case. When you think my life is more important than yours or my attention-seeking is worth your suffering, well, that is, that is pride. That is a sin that, like radiation, will poison the ground so that the fruits of the Spirit cannot take root. And of course, it's a hard thing to say pride is the fall when we are just beginning Pride Month here in the U.S. And that's not the kind of pride I'm talking about. Pride Month is about affirming the beauty of each individual person the, the fact that everyone is deserving of love, regardless of how they live their lives, how they were created, that we are all beloved children of God. God delights in the truly wonderful and life-affirming things that we can build, but when the affirmation of the self comes at the expense of others, that is toxic. I heard someone say this week, uh, they were telling the story of coming out as gay to their parents, and he said, I didn't come out of the closet. The closet burned down around me. And by that, he meant that his family, his friends, his community, the people around him removed all those barriers that kept him fearful of being his whole self. And so to that, I say, let it burn. Let that burn down. Let those barriers fall. Because diversity is a blessing. It is not a curse. The confusion of the people's language at Babel, when God comes down and confuses their language so that the 
great tower would no longer be able to be constructed. That was not a curse. It was a blessing. That they were then scattered across the face of the earth. That too was a blessing. John Calvin once wrote that we ought not regard this as a punishment, but that the proliferation of different languages and cultures over the face of the earth flows from the benediction and grace of God. The Old Testament scholar Bernard Anderson says, God's will for creation is diversity rather than homogeneity. And so pluralism is to be welcomed as a divine blessing. The lesson of the tower at Babel was not just that the cult of survival or fear and pride are toxic. It was also that the opposite of monoculture, the opposite of one language and one unified people gathered around that ideal of survival, that the opposite of that, diversity, being spread abroad across the world, living differently, all of those things are a blessing from God. It is God's intention that we live that way, that we be scattered out of the towers and the echo chambers in which toxic ideas thrive to encounter the beauty of other people. And it's not just the the toxic nature of attention-getting and celebrity that is really a problem with these mass shootings. The other component of it that probably needs no mention, but that should be mentioned, is is the, the culture of violence in which we live. I was struck by the fact that the same week that people were weeping over the deaths of 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas. The top grossing movie at the box offices that weekend was called Top Gun. And you, you don't just have to look at the box offices, you can look all around you at all the ways in which our, our culture here in America is saturated with violence. You can't even bring out a flag at a baseball game to sing the national anthem without someone standing next to it with a gun. You know, they, I remember when the kids were little once, we were at the playground, and uh, I think Brady was like three or four, and he was playing with these other boys, and, you know, they picked up sticks, and at first they were digging in the sand with them, but then eventually, inevitably, they started shooting at each other with these toy sticks. And the, the dad of the other kids Brady was playing with was like, well, you know, it's only a matter of time before they turn anything into a gun. At that moment, I thought to myself, why? Why is it that already at the age of four, the thing young boys aspire to most is to shoot people with guns? That's not true everywhere. That culture of violence is not true everywhere. And in other places, people are willing to recognize that there is a trade-off between the desire for self-preservation and to do so with violence and, and living in a world that is at peace with itself. I mean, heaven forbid we talk about taking away people's guns. But that happened. In Christchurch, New Zealand, in 2019, a man went into a mosque and shot and killed over 50 people. And he live-streamed the whole thing on the internet, inspiring some of the very shooters who have been committing mass shootings just in these last few weeks. And in the aftermath of that, The government in New Zealand instituted a law banning the kinds of weapons that the man used, the kind that allowed him to kill so many people so quickly. They banned those weapons and they required everyone who owned them 
to give them back to the government. They gave them money in exchange for that, but they took the guns, they melted them down so that no one else in that country would be killed with these weapons anymore. It can be done. It can be done. The tower was built at Babel, but then it was abandoned. God intervened and the tower was no more. And in fact, the Jewish historian Josephus said that after the tower had been abandoned, it was destroyed. First, a third of it was destroyed when a great wind came. A violent wind came and knocked a third of it down. And then after it, a third of it was destroyed when fire came. Fire came and divided and covered the tower and burned another third of it down. And then last, the last third was consumed by the earth until the tower was no more. And that too is what happened on Pentecost. Because first, there was a violent wind. And then there were tongues of fire that came. And who the disciples had been who the disciples were, was burned away. It was gone. Remember that after the resurrection, Peter had wanted to go back to fishing. He'd wanted to go back to his old way of life. And he had. He'd started, they'd gone out on his fishing trip. But afterwards, he met the risen Christ, and Christ said to him, I have a new assignment for you. You're not going to be a fisherman anymore. You need to feed my sheep. Burn those ships. You're not going back to that life. It can be undone. Many folks think that we should read Pentecost as the reversal of what happened at Babel. That at Babel, one people, one unified group who were united by language and culture, they were scattered. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit comes and they are gathered back in today. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, that the promise of Pentecost is unity and togetherness, but with one important difference. At Pentecost, they were not all one people. They were all together in one place, but they were not all the same. We get this whole long list of Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians, Cappadocians, Phrygians, Egyptians, Folks as far away from Li as Libya and Rome and Arabia. If you take a map and you put a pin in Jerusalem and you draw a huge circle outwards, all of those people listed are, are in, this, in this huge circle around the Mediterranean. And the sense we are to get is that all of those people from all of those different places were all there in that one place together. But they were still distinct and different. It doesn't say that the disciples spoke in one language and that everyone heard in the same language. No, it says they spoke different languages and everyone heard in their own tongue. Everyone heard in their own language. And at the end of it, they were still confused. The people all there were confused. And the funny thing is, is that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the very same word, Babel, that's used in the New Testament to describe the people here. They are still confused by this difference. But then Peter, Peter stands up and says, look, we aren't Galileans anymore. That has been burned away. We are followers of Christ, 
And what we are doing right now is the fulfillment of the good news of Christ. This is the promise of unity without uniformity. Harmony without homogeneity. This is the promise of God's kingdom that that pulls different people together and roots them down in something greater than themselves. It is the opposite of a culture of self-importance and and, and self-interest, but the promise of a kingdom that is marked by love, that embraces and transcends our difference. And that is what we pray for every week here in service. We just did a little while ago. We prayed that the Spirit would come, open our minds, unlock our hearts, descend upon us to burn away the fear and the pride that we've built up in our hearts. We pray that God will come and scatter us abroad across the face of the earth to be bearers of the good news. We ask for that. When Jesus sent his disciples out to minister in his name, though, Do you know what he told them to take with them? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing for self-defense. Not even an extra shirt. He sent the disciples out in humility and vulnerability to be bearers of the good news of the gospel. It is the exact opposite of fear and pride. That is the way that we live as members of God's beloved community, as we live as members of a church, an ecclesia, a word that really just means movement, that is still moving in this world. The people in New Mexico, they will come back. When the fire subsides, they will come back and they will rebuild because The beautiful, pluralistic culture of that place is rooted in that land, and it is something that transcends their individual lives. It is something that is worth preserving to them. And so they will come back. New life will spring up. And insofar as we can get beyond this culture of celebrity and violence and affirm something else, then new life will spring up in the aftermath of these mass shootings. Because the thing about when a wildfire comes through is that even as it decimates a place, it does not leave the land barren. Fire combusts the carbon in organic matter, but it leaves behind plenty of other stuff, uh, specifically calcium carbonate and phosphorus. That's what's in ashes. You can actually pay a lot of money to go and buy bags of this very chemicals to put on your lawn and put in your garden because that's what makes things grow. In the aftermath of a fire, there can be new growth. And it is costly. It is costly indeed. And so when we hear that the Spirit came and divided tongues of fire, we should hear destruction. But we should also hear renewal. And so today, let us pray that the Spirit will come and blow and burn away all that is in this world and in us that holds us back from the promise of the kingdom, the promise of the glory of the children of God that is our inheritance through Jesus Christ. Let the Spirit come. Let the Spirit come. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
I hope that God's Word has come alive and blessed you today. If you want more information about Union Congregational Church, once again, feel free to come and visit us on Sunday morning or online at our website, churchbythepark.org.